Hi, this is Alan. I'd just like to say a few words as to how the website has been received and uh, how information uh, has affected some people, different types of people in different ways. And uh, it might be appropriate to give a few comments on this particular website of mine. I put this up really not with the intention of uh, going along with any mainstream popular movement. I don't really like popular movements, since popular movements, uh, as Plato said, are given from the top down for the people to follow. Uh, rather, this, this particular website could be an example for other people who are individuals who can see that the king has no clothes, so to speak, and may want to, to emulate uh, this kind of website for themselves by informing themselves of what really is happening in their life, um, what's behind it, uh, the techniques that are used to motivate people into mass movements, um, different kinds of mind control. We tend to think of mind control as being really a one-on-one -on -one thing from of kidnap people by spies and, and so on. But in reality, the easiest form of mind control is generated from basically governmental institutions via media and propaganda. It's the most ancient technique that's ever been used. And why change it when it works so well? Always. Um, if you have a million people taught that the, the earth is flat, and you train them all to, to, to believe in this, then obviously the norm in that society would be to say that the earth is flat. If one person says, wait a minute here, I've proven by my own uh, investigations that it's impossible to be flat, then all the rest of the people will think he's crazy. Well, that's because it's easier to influence the bulk of the population than it, it is to, to, to get to a thinking individual with his own inquiry. So this website has been received um, very, very well by listeners from all over. And uh, I've really been very, very busy on a one-to-one -one basis with many individuals, giving them extra information as to, to, to books, research they can go into, to try and pick up the trail of this ancient uh, um, plan, uh, an organized plan, which can be followed all down through history. Even professors in university talk about it in different terms. Um, some of them used to call it manifest destiny. And it's odd that they always knew who we were sort of going, even though um, they were rather vague about the techniques employed. The Hindus may have a point when they say that man, man's biggest problem really uh, is his own intellect because we have the ability to be sentient and aware. Most people don't really use that. They're quite happy to be downloaded by mass media and popular movements with uh, its mass production print machines. But... Um, but truly enough, uh, the very fact that we ask the whys uh, gives us the problem of, of trying to
to stumble through and find the solutions uh, to our problems. We see through a, a glass darkly, as they say, and that's never been any different in any era. The, the, the difference being perhaps that those at the top have access to archives of information, which is uh, different from public libraries. Archives are full of techniques of control, uh, which have been used over thousands of years. Information is never destroyed. It's simply removed to other quarters, and then the old libraries are burned. Uh, master dictators and tyrants uh, don't destroy information. They steal it and hide it for themselves because, it's, because knowledge is power. And when you want to retain power over people, you don't share it with them. You give them false leads, endless leads, and um, and the people, sure enough, will pick up the paper trails and and go in circles forever. Uh, that's what you do. Uh, you you steal knowledge and hide it. And that's how all knowledge is given out in public libraries. You can go through so many hundreds and hundreds of books, dry, dreary books by ex-bureaucrats and ex-politicians and ex-bankers and, and so on and to find one paragraph within every book that, that, that puts on the light switch everything else in the book you could throw away and those people know this this is the technique of scattering knowledge it's deliberate you will never get a single book with all of the answers contained within and that's deliberate too. Now, the few people who have complained at all uh, really are not complaining about the knowledge I'm giving out. Um, what they're really saying by their complaints, by the form that their complaints take, is that I'm not touching on the space aliens or I'm not touching on the reptilians, you know. And uh, uh, that, again, is a form, uh, or they'll, they'll say I'm not touching on the New Age, uh, their favorite um, addiction, you might say. And I do touch on these things if they really do listen and go through all the free stuff I've given out there for them to listen to, if they have the patience. Most New Agers want instant gratification and they simply jump from one teacher or guru to the next and they pay their money and they never complain. They never say they've been had. They simply devour what they're given, never understanding it generally anyway and, and then go on to the next gulp somewhere else. And that's called uh, you know, shopping for religion. And uh, I'm sure there's thousands of websites out there where they can go shopping for that. Um, in the Kabbalah of course they talk about the end soft which is the endless and that's what you have for the for the new age shoppers um, it's fine for a hobby you know if nothing else to occupy themselves with but while they're shopping for the new age in an answer to their spiritual crisis they fail to realize that that this is a world where spirit meets matter. And what happens in the world of matter, since you wake up as you every day, uh, presumably, 
except for the reptilians, of course, then um, what you do here in the world of matter is important. The trick uh, that has been used in uh, ancient civilizations was to convince the public that nothing was real at all, you see. And once you convince them of that, you've dominated them. Because whatever you do to them doesn't matter since nothing's real. And that's the usual spiel of psychological warfare, which is put out by certain individuals even today, by the for on, on behalf of the big boys. It's so easy to control vast civilizations and populations when whenever you do anything to them, it doesn't matter because nothing's real, it's all illusion. An illusion, by definition, is is really, it's not a hallucination. An hallucination is not real at all, you see. That's what it means. Uh, an illusion is a distortion of reality. So we should be very clear on, on the terms that are used. And people who are taught that uh, this is not really happening, and all the nasty things are not really happening, um, can retreat into their their ends off and go on forever, uh, or at least as long as the ones who control the physical allow it, because that's what it boils down to. I've never ceased uh, to be amazed at the people who always ask the questions about uh, the afterlife. When they're living in this one, they can't even deal with this one. And as Socrates said, you know, they're not content about putting uh, laws on the physical world. Here they are putting laws on the, on the spiritual world as well. That's the folly of man. And so they go on and on in their hunt. They're endless. Allowing monsters to formulate the future for for a few very wealthy elite families who have this knowledge and have hundreds if not thousands of think tanks working for them. And since they conjure up the money and have convinced us all that they have the actual right to rule and, and, and run this system of money, uh, they've got it all sewn up because it's their system, you see. Where money talks, morality walks. So for those who simply want to um, ask endless questions about something they can never prove to their own satisfaction, I would suggest that they, they go on and follow the movement that was uh, revived or resuscitated from theosophy, a masonically run organization chartered by the British Crown to alter the world to come for the 20th century. It, it sort of faltered off through the, the scandals that came out afterwards on Madame Blavatsky and the various frauds that she committed. But it was revived again um, in the 1960s by a big movement called Pop. Pop was father, of course. That was followed by a rock in this masonry. And uh, out of nowhere burst this new pop music 
that's the general uh, view. And, and reality didn't burst out uh, by itself. It was simply unleashed at the right time. And the charge took back into the New Age, which again is the name of the, the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry's magazine, their journal. Uh, and, and they prophesied they'd do this back in the 1950s in their journals. Um, how came the Beatles? And the Beatles, of course, came out with uh, what was going to be given to the public. And that which was given to the public as a diffusion of the mind, a diffusion of reason, was the land that we knew successfully in India for thousands of years. A basic form of theosophy blended with a Christianity and uh, other religions. This is contained in the following song. Throughout Europe, 
And the goal of the reading societies was under the guise of helping the working people to, to read and they then formed discussion groups. And then when you have discussion groups, the, the, the material which you're given to read becomes very important because when you standardize the reading material, then you're standardizing thought and conclusions and you're creating a movement towards a particular direction and out of those actual reading societies was to come publishing houses. And if you go back over the last two, three hundred years up to the present time and just look out how many of the big mainstream publishing houses has the little lantern with its logo, the illumined ones, you see, are the ones who started off these reading societies because being a form of computer, a human being can only parrot what is downloaded with and you come to the conclusions which the programmer, the one who gives out the material, knows that you must, you must reach. You shape the mind. Masonry shapes society. It shapes the mind. It, it sculpts it basically in a direction and that is the whole method of controlling the public you you standardize things through mainstream mainstream comes from the underground stream which uh, they called this this current of of teaching this thought process this uh, underground movement um, from the rosicrucian era of the 1500s onwards the underground stream so they shape the form and content of your thought and by limiting you or directing you along certain lines of thinking with limited access to knowledge you must come to the conclusions which they know you must come to a computer programmer does the same thing a good programmer who designs a computer and its program its language that it runs on will know what conclusion by feeding in the language, the data that that computer must reach on any particular problem and humans work exactly the same so out they came with uh, the new age, you know re revived um, the people behind it uh, jumping into reincarnation which is a natural thing to jump into it's so ancient uh, it's a wonderful idea that you can keep coming back and work off your bad deeds and sort of evolve, you see. And of course, evolution is at the heart of very high occult Freemasonry. Only at the very high levels, they are completely into the belief of physical um, regeneration through interbreeding uh, in order to gain that the perfect spirit to inhabit the body whereas commoners who pick their mates at, at random uh, that's why they're called commoners they're not arranged marriages uh, then, then they end up with this um, what they call a hit and miss type of offspring once in a while you get someone who's fairly bright maybe even a genius but generally um, it, it's uh, 
as the lesser types that they, that they call commoners, whereas the elite ones, including the scientific groups that have been going on down through the ages, literally breed, uh, uh, interbreed their own offspring to be, to be scientists. You'll see the same thing in the acting communities, where for multi-generations, the actors that one generation sees are just the sons and daughters of the previous generation's actors. And that standard with most uh, culture creation um, uh, parts of the control mechanism of society. So in the 1960s, out came, out came uh, the New Age, just bang, uh, books were on the shelves everywhere. Uh, lucid, you know, LSD. If you speak it, it's lucid. Um, just happened to be thrown over by the sack fools uh, over university walls all over Europe, uh, generally out of big limos. And it was. Uh, it wasn't until years later it was found out that the main societies that were dishing this stuff out over the walls uh, were, were basically government MI5, MI6 type societies uh, and then of course many books came out much much later telling us that uh, uh, Victor Rothschild uh, the one except, exception to the, the banking family um, he did go into banking eventually but he was a scientist and he was experimenting uh, on various MI5 agents with LSD at Port and Downs uh, warfare facilities in England and you can find that in Peter Wright's book, uh, Spycatcher. So the big, big corporations, the big um, drug companies, were behind the first manufacturing of LSD to get the, the tripping, the, the, the day tripper, you see. As the Beatles sung the song, the day tripper, to get the tripping going. A tripping is a movement uh, devised to make a person stumble. You trip. And that's what it was. You break the stride of people who are going in a direction. You trip them up. And uh, you land where you may. You have a day trip. These societies that were dishing out uh, the drugs all over the place also put out their front men to propagandize the, the wonders of LSD and the government controlled BBC of England was at the, the spearhead of this since they were the only station at the time in Britain and they had all these sudden teenage programs on on rock music or pop music as they called it there and they had these older guys aging that would be the DJs and act like children and uh, lots of go-go dancers to ensure that, that the guys watched it, of course. And, uh, and then they would interview the occasional uh, supposed star that was hanging off a chair somewhere, or trying to hang on to a chair, and, and uh, mumble some strange answers uh, from very direct questions, because they were generally stoned. And then they would look at the camera, and they'd all laugh and giggle and say, aren't we naughty? And that, of course, helped get all the youngsters who watched this in to get into the idea that, by God, this, is, this must be good stuff because these guys are approving it. And that's how they got the whole thing going. And that was to destroy the old system. The old system had to be kept going 
up into World War Two with uh, you know God King country that type of stuff, and it, it had served, served its purpose. Now it was, it was time to bring in the New Age and high masonry, not the bottom stuff, but high masonry forms. A mason forms things; they form, they shape society. That means that all the control mechanisms over society are reformed, reshaped, like building a new cathedral. And once you build a new cathedral, you, you dismantle the old. It has served its purpose. The New Age uh, saw massive changes. Promiscuity was pushed to the hilt. They'd worked fervently since the 1920s to bring out a birth pill. And, of course, penicillin to, to cope with the venereal diseases that came out. And abortion started making its appearance. So promiscuity to destroy the family unit, to destroy possibility of long-term marriage. Everybody who grew up in those days had a big number done on their head. And you can see the fallout today because society, as far as relationships go, is, is pretty well completely dysfunctional. No one escaped it. No one. So, for those who who aren't hearing for the want to hear, which is the the praise of the new age and uh, the explanations of mysteries, uh, I don't bother to teach because you don't have the patience to learn. They can gobble up as many books as they wish. There's an endless plethora dished out every year, actually every month. It's big business. And uh, uh, like someone with um, a bottomless stomach, uh, their appetite is endless because there is no satisfaction in what to consume. And the impatient can't be taught anything. I would advise them to do what the Beatles said to do, to join the tour, because that was the beginning of, of the Magical Mystery Tour. That was the meaning of the Magical Mystery Tour. So for all those aboard, the Magical Mystery Tour, consume as much as you want, whatever you want, and listen to the song of the Beatles who were put out there to promote it. This magical mystery tour has been tried many times over and over again. It was tried uh, in the 1920s and 30s during the, uh, the Great Depression. The great word when it's put between a person's name or before a person's name or a war or a depression is, is a Masonic term. Uh, they love the great, like Alexander the Great, you see. The, the little pin uh, pricks of light which shape history down through the, the darkness of time. And so we can see the, the connection between uh, the drug culture being thrown out in the Great Depression, uh, along with prohibition, uh, to get the youth into the, to the booze cans, the the underground booze cans where it was exciting and naughty 
you see. And actually, after the great, after they, they got prohibition off, they had way more drinkers than they had before it because they made it popular to go into these little dives, you see, uh, where you'd hear the jazz and uh, the miniskirt that they tried in the 1920s uh, with the Charleston dance and so on. That was all part of, of the introduction of a system which failed because they didn't have a system in place to take care of the aftermath, the fallout of, of uh, too many children, um, unwanted pregnancies, venereal disease, uh, and of course even rehab clinics for all the drug addicts and alcoholics. So they, they, they put it back and they went back to the drawing board and worked steadily for years to get the pill. And with the pill, they introduced at the same time the drug culture uh, that was revived again. Uh, that's why this, the religion that runs all religions at the top is called the perennial religion. It keeps popping up down through time. It's the same one. And we can find um, in, in the 1960s, for instance, uh, they came out with uh, Timothy Leary, uh, who always wore a white coat showing that he was the scientist and he'd give stage appearances and he wrote books on the on the wonders of drugs and uh, and, and how, it, how it expanded the mind and this was pushed down the, the throats of the young people who just gobbled it up eagerly you see, this, he's an older guy a scientist no, no, no doubt telling you that, that, that drugs were wonderful for you that expand your brain and, and uh, do wonderful things for you, give you great experiences. Uh, he wasn't the only one put out there. It's interesting, too, to bring his, his name down to the Masonic coding, because it's the Tim is time, you see. And uh, you also have Leary. O'Leary in Britain was the man who went round lighting the gas lamps in the streets at night in the 1800s. So he's, he's another little reference to the Illuminati. Uh, a little tongue-in-cheek high Masonic joke. And um, he was one of many put out there to promote that. Now, I'll do Huxley was another one who, who was conjured up um, a long, long before from a long lineage of high, high Freemasonry going back to his ancestor, um, Thomas Huxley, who was a friend of Charles Darwin. And Darwin is, Darwin's theory was nothing more than the, basically the, the exoteric version of, of the religion of Freemasonry, high Freemasonry, um, put out there under the guise of a scientific theory. Because in the high, high religion, evolution of all species up to, uh, uh, to man and to the next step of man is all part of the inner secret religion has been here forever all down through history since Babylon we've seen the signs and symptoms of this disease uh, that controls society and brings out the worst in humanity as it controls all of humanity and the MO is always the same uh, you have a group who control the banking and the money that's essential for this system. It all rests on money. Everyone works for money, not for food. It's money that, that controls the whole system. Uh, you have the largest cities where 
largest cities to control empires like the world empire and the empire state the financial capitals of the world where the richest people live amidst the most squalor of poverty all around them that's part of their MO mass prostitution uh, the illicit scenes so the legal is run by them legal system above the illegal below as above so below they run both sides of everything um, they keep the people in check by using uh, a form of police forces in the ancient times it was the military they would call them police and this keeps the people the public under all of the rules of law that are enforced from the top under the guise of fighting crime and of course the big boys control both sides of it uh, the Mafia is only one branch of Freemasonry and you'll find that the man who Albert Pike designated to take over from him was Giuseppe Mazzini Mazzini is just uh, Italian for Mason and he started the, he gave the authorization and charter for the Mafia to start up so uh, they're all interconnected as above so below legal, illegal it's all one and part of the same system so prostitution, drugs, um, uh, gambling, um, they also have the legal drug industry, uh, pharmacology, uh, they run that side too. The illegal drugs, to keep the people spaced out, is run by them. Um, the same MOs, as I say, the same symbols too. And they also, wherever they go, they bring a mystery religion that's sold through symbols and talismans and magic writings uh, etc wherever they go to intrigue the peoples around them that then are formed into groups or sects who end up serving a purpose which they don't even understand really but um, for most people it's not really necessary that they understand they just want to to believe they're involved in some great mysterious cause going back to Aldo Huxley um, he gave a speech at Berkeley University uh, to do with the, the wonders of drugs and ele electronic control of the brain through possible implants or wires in the brain anything which would take away what he said this incredible loneliness and anxiety that everyone feels this apartness and this is again going back to the Masonic doctrine of oneness we're all one that's what they teach you they themselves at the top don't believe that they're all one but they tell you down below that we're all one that way we react like a school of fish you know a school of fish all, act, all move at the same time in the same direction they are in a sense one that's not what human beings are all about but they will have us all move in the same direction and that makes it easier to control so Huxley who worked in Tavistock Institute uh, and worked as a propagandist for the New World Order uh, promoting mind expansion drugs um, was put out there to go around and encourage teenagers and, and to, to try the drugs and he'd talk at Ivy League universities because, it, because and he was talking more honestly there about the real purpose of his mission because uh, at Berkeley uh, the faculties who were listening to them and the students were the ones who would be part of the controlling bureaucracies of, of uh, to come. 
So they were far, far more honest on their real mission in talks like the one he gave at the, the Berkeley uh, University. Huxley himself, it should be remembered, died in his wife's arms after taking an overdose of mescaline and LSD. So whether he saw Lucy in the sky with diamonds or uh, the great uh, god of the South America, who knows? But it didn't do him a lot of good in the, in the, in the end. Uh, the, the sad tragedy of all of this is that so many people have died with the promotion of drugs by an occultic group at the top very wealthy occultic group who finance all sides of every war knowing who they've chosen to be the victor before the wars even start always as part of a plan towards a greater empire, a world empire. Those who struggle in the wars never figure that out. They're caught up in the emotion. And as soon as one side loses some comrades, then the whole country's up because they rely on tribal instinct to take over. And yet, Professor Anthony Sutton did incredible investigations into all of this. He found the sources. He detailed the sources of who financed Hitler. And he also put out Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution to show you that the same big boys, big corporations, and people behind the corporations financed the Bolsheviks or Soviet system. And Germany would never have risen under Nazism without this aid it wouldn't have had the, the reason to rise up as it did and everyone knew that Germany had two ways out of its problems after World War I because it was paying all of its money out in reparations the people were starving and it, had, it either fought its way out of it or it died and millions would have died. They knew this when they signed the Versailles Treaty in World War One. Everyone knew it. Communism had been agitating since 1917 in Germany to, 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 for a revolution. Without communism or Bolshevism, you would never have seen the rise of a Hegelian opposition, the Nazi Party. And both sides were financed fully by the same corporations of the West who still run things today in the West. Huxley and others never talked about the downside of drugs. You don't, uh, to get new converts, you don't want to tell them about the side effects what it does to you or the endless amount of people end up in mental hospitals in the 60s and the 70s and still today who are now classified as uh, basically drug-induced schizophrenics their brains are so fried and this was a great experiment in mind control 
over the public, the, the youth of the public. And when you're under drugs, which you think you can handle, of course you're taught that you can handle them. And we have egos when we're young. We have no common sense. We've all been there. When you're under the influence, you don't make rational decisions. You not only don't make rational decisions, you don't notice the big changes that are happening in the world around you, which will affect you later on and everyone else around you. These are the big movements and political movements that are, that are busy signing laws and treaties and so on. And that's part of keeping you out of the loop. So drugs are very handy for, for once again doing what the Hindus did. You know, nothing's real, nothing matters except me, my spirit. Uh, and you're, you're classified as disabled, really. You're not participating in the creation of destiny for yourself, for others. You're out of the loop. You're navel-gazing or counting your toes over and over. In the 20s, when they brought out the drugs and the booze, big time, with the miniskirts, with the dancing, and with the music to match it, the call jazz, the, uh, they had songs burst out to promote it, as they always do, to the glory of drugs, you see. And the big boys, like the, the Bronfmans, who were into the whiskey trade, uh, and the Kennedys, and many others who made their fortunes uh, for, from prohibition, also were dealing with the smuggling of cocaine, drugs, to get everyone hooked, you see. And Luke Jordan was the, probably the first who came out in 1927 with Cocaine Blues, and that popularized, the, once again, the, the, how naughty we are, as, as youngsters like to think, let's try this naughty cocaine. And he sang it about it floating all around your brain. Uh, that was revised again when they hit us with the same stuff uh, under the, the revamped New Age um, in the 1960s. Um, I know Bob Dylan did a version of Cocaine Blues. Uh, others did it too. Nick uh, Drake did it. And then of course we had the... We had... Simon Garfunkel, uh, who came out with one of the most beautiful songs that everybody sang and hummed along to and whistled to uh, in the days when they used to whistle. And it's called Bridge Over Troubled Waters. Most people listen to songs on a, a subliminal, subconscious level. They're downloaded with words and ideas and symbols which they, they never rationally or consciously think about. But it works on them inside. And Bridge Over Troubled Waters was nothing to do with a woman or, or anything like that. It was to do with uh, the needle for heroin. The Bridge Over Troubled Waters was a shot of heroin going into the arm. Why would multi-million dollar industries Knowing that these entertainment industries, as Plato said, well over 2,300 years ago, these industries in his day he knew 
were used for the creation and alteration of culture. Why would multinational, multi-million dollar industries be promoting and be, be allowed to promote drugs to the youth? Where was the, where was the other side of the story? The fallout from all of this? Uh, the burned out ones? The dead ones? You know, the people jumping out of buildings? think they could fly or walking into lakes and drowning after rock concerts there was no outcry because that was the agenda and that's why the top gives culture that's why you'll see the Beatles being knighted that's why the Rolling Stones get knighted why would you knight people who promoted the drug culture the era of promiscuity with its massive fallout on families disease abortions why would you give the high awards of the country to these people well you get them because the ones at the top of the country wanted that to happen it was on the cards it was not spontaneous Huxley should be listened to in the upcoming speech he gave at uh, Berkeley carefully because he was a mover and shaker working for the, one of the, uh, the most advanced mind control institutions on the planet talking and giving away what he's allowed to give away the most incredible things in the nicest possible way in a captivating way so you can think my god this man is really nice and human and pleasant and you can even joke with him yet here he is talking about what's the problem about introducing a new soma drug into society if it keeps them happy and quiet and peaceful uh, what's, the, what's the problem about putting wires into people's brains uh, to give them peace? What he never touches on, but what he is well aware of, and the question he will not ask, therefore, is why are people so anxious and unhappy? Because since he came from the ruling elite classes, the aristocracy, the man even speaks with a, a 19th century accent of the upper elite. What he never mentions is that the system they had created is not intended to give you peace. You control masses of people by keeping them ill at ease. So here is the thesis again, the, 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 the um, Hegelian dialectic. the thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis. Here's the problem. Here's what you do to fix the problem. <clears throat> Here's the, the, the thing that comes out of the, 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 the blending of the two together. So listen to his words carefully. And you'll probably like the man, because that's his job, is to make you like him. 
tells you the most amazing things that he and others would like to do to society. He talks about a scientific dictatorship and he lists the reasons why he thinks it would succeed. Where the old Illuminati experts running everything would run your life and you'd never know and you'd be quite happy because you couldn't think anymore basically as an individual. So listen carefully to the upcoming talk beginning now. University in its capacity as a Ford Research Professor. Mr. Huxley has recently returned from a conference at the Institute for the Study of Democratic Institutions in Santa Barbara where the discussion focused on the development of new techniques by which to control and direct human behavior. Traditionally, it is impossible to suppress individual freedom but through the application of physical coercion, through the appeal of ideologies, uh, through the manipulation of man's physical and social environment, and more recently through the uh, techniques, the cruder techniques of psychological conditioning. The ultimate revolution about which Mr. Huxley will speak today concerns itself with the development of new behavioral controls which operate directly upon the psychophysiological organisms of man, that is, the capacity to replace external constraint by internal compulsion. As those of us who are familiar with Mr. Huxley's work well know, this is a subject with which he has been concerned for, for quite a period of time. Uh, Mr. Huxley will make a presentation of approximately half an hour followed by some brief discussions and questions by the two panelists sitting to my left, by Ms. William Rivlin and Mr. John Post, and Mr. Huxley. Thank you. Uh, first of all, the, uh, I'd like to say that the conference at Santa Barbara was not directly concerned with the control of the mind. That was uh, a conference that has been too often now at the University of California Medical Center in San Francisco. One this year, which I didn't attend, and one two years ago, where, where there was a considerable discussion on this uh, subject. At Santa Barbara, we were talking about technology in general and the, um, the effects it's likely to have on society and the problems uh, related to uh, technological transplanting of technology and uh, technology into underdeveloped countries. Well, now, in regard to this problem of, uh, of the ultimate revolution, uh, this has been very well summed up by the moderator. Uh, in the past, we can say that uh, all revolutions have essentially aimed at changing uh, the environment in order to change the individual. I mean, there's been the... Uh, political revolution, the economic revolution, uh, in the time of the Reformation, the religious revolution, uh, all these uh, aimed, as I say, not directly at the human being, but at the surroundings, so that by modifying the surroundings, you did achieve, uh, in, at one remove, uh, an effect upon the human being. Today, uh, we are faced, I think, with the approach of what may be called the ultimate revolution, the final revolution, where a man can act directly on uh, the mind-body of his fellows. Well, needless to say, 
that some kind of direct action on human mind bodies has been going on since the beginning of time. Uh, but this has generally been uh, of a violent nature. The techniques of terrorism have been known from time immemorial, and people have employed them with more or less uh, ingenuity, sometimes with uh, the utmost crudity, sometimes with a, a good deal of skill acquired uh, by a process of trial and error, finding out what the best way of uh, using torture, imprisonment, uh, constraints of various kinds. Uh, but uh, as uh, I think it was Metternich said uh, many years ago, uh, you can do everything with fairness except sit on them. Uh, if you are going to control any population for any length of time, you must have some measure of consent. It's exceedingly difficult to see uh, how pure terrorism can function indefinitely. It can function for a fairly long time, but I think uh, sooner or later you have to bring in an element of persuasion, an element of of getting people to consent to what is happening to them. Well, it seems to me that the, the nature of the ultimate revolution with which we are now faced is precisely this, uh, that we are in process of developing a whole series of techniques which uh, will enable the controlling oligarchy, who have always existed and presumably always will exist, uh, to... Uh, get people actually to love their servitude. Uh, this is the, seems to me, the, the ultimate uh, in malevolent revolution, shall we say. And uh, this, is a, this is a problem which uh, has interested me for many years and about which I wrote uh, 30 years ago a fable, The Brave New World, which is uh, essentially the account of a society making use of all the the devices at that time available, and some of the devices which uh, uh, I imagined to be possible, uh, making use of them in order to, first of all, to standardize the population, to iron out uh, inconvenient human differences, uh, to create, uh, so to say, mass-produced models of human beings arranged uh, in some kind of a scientific uh, caste system. And uh, since then I have uh, con continued to be extremely interested uh, in this problem, and I have noticed uh, with increasing dismay that uh, a number of the predictions which were purely fantastic when I made them 30 years ago uh, have come true or, or seem in process of coming true. That, uh, a number of techniques about which I talked seem to be here already, and that there seems to be a general movement uh, in the direction of this kind of ultimate revolution, this, this method of control uh, by which uh, people can be made to enjoy a state of affairs which, by any decent standard, they ought not to enjoy. This uh, is the enjoyment of uh, of servitude. Well, uh, this um, this process, as I say, has uh, gone on for over over the years, and um, I become more and more interested in what is happening. 
And here I would like uh, briefly to uh, to compare the parable of Brave New World with uh, another parable which was put forth more recently uh, in uh, George Orwell's book, 1984. Uh, Orwell wrote his book between, I think, between 45 and 48, uh, at the time when the Stalinist, the Stalinist uh, terror regime was still in full swing, and just after the uh, collapse of the Hitlerian terror regime. And his book, uh, which I admire greatly, it's a book of very great talent and extraordinary ingenuity, shows, uh, it should say, a projection into the future of the immediate past, of what for him was the immediate past, and the immediate present. It was a projection into the future of a society uh, where control was exercised solely by terrorism and uh, violent uh, attacks upon the mind-body of individuals. Whereas uh, my own uh, book, which was uh, written in, in, in 1932, when there was only a, a mild dictatorship in the form of Mussolini uh, in, in existence, was not overshadowed by the idea of terrorism. And uh, I was therefore free in a way which Orwell was not free uh, to think about these other methods uh, of control, these, these um, non-violent methods. And my, I'm inclined to think that uh, the scientific dictatorships of the future, and I think there are going to be scientific dictatorships in many parts of the world, will be probably a good deal nearer to the brave new world pattern uh, than to the uh, 1984 pattern. They will be a good deal nearer, not because of any humanitarian qualms in the scientific dictator, but simply because the brave new world pattern is probably a good deal more efficient than the other. But if you can uh, get people to consent to the state of affairs in which they are living, the state of servitude, the state of being, having their differences ironed out and being made uh, uh, amenable to mass production methods on the social level, if you can do this, then you have, uh, you are likely to have a much more stable, a much more lasting society uh, a much more easily controllable society than you would if you were relying wholly on clubs and firing squads and concentration camps. Uh, so that uh, my own feeling is that the 1984 picture uh, was tinged, of course, by the uh, immediate uh, past and the present in which uh, Orwell was living, but the, theme, uh, the past and present of those years does not represent, I feel, uh, the likely trend of what is going to happen. Needless to say, we shall never get rid of terrorism that will always uh, find its way to the surface. But I think that uh, insofar as uh, dictators become more and more scientific, more and more concerned with a technically perfect, uh, perfectly running society, uh, they will be more and more interested in the kind of techniques which uh, uh, I imagine and describe from existing reality uh, in Brave New World. So that uh, uh, it seems to me then that this ultimate revolution is really not very far away, that we already the 
a number of the techniques for uh, bringing about this kind of control are here, and it remains to be seen uh, when and where and by whom uh, they will first be applied uh, in any large scale. And first, uh, let me talk about uh, a little bit about the improvement even in the techniques of, of terrorism. Uh, I think there, there have been improvements. There's the there's the um, uh, Pavlov, after all, made some extremely profound observations, both on animals and on human beings. And he found, uh, among other things, that, uh, uh, that uh, conditioning uh, techniques apply to animals or humans in a state either of psychological or physical threat. Uh, Think in, so to say, very deeply into the mind body of the creature, and we're extremely difficult to get rid of, but they seem to be embedded more deeply than, than other forms of conditioning. And um, this, of course, uh, this fact, I think, was discovered empirically in the past. People did make use of, uh, of many of these uh, techniques. But uh, the difference between the the old empirical intuitive methods and our own methods is the difference between uh, a sort of hit and miss uh, uh, craftsman's point of view and the genuinely scientific point of view. I mean, I think there is a real uh, difference between ourselves and, say, the inquisitors of the 16th century. We know much more precisely what we are doing than they knew, and we can extend, because of our theoretical knowledge, we can extend uh, what we are doing over a wider area with a greater assurance of, uh, of being, uh, of producing something which really works. In this context, I would uh, like to mention the extremely interesting chapters in uh, Dr. William Sargent's Battle uh, um, for the Mind, where he uh, points out how intuitively uh, some of the great uh, religious uh, teachers, leaders of the past, have hit on the Pavlovian method. He, he speaks uh, specifically of uh, Wesley's method of producing conversion, uh, which were essentially based upon a, a technique of, of heightening psychological stress to the limits by talking about hellfire and so making people extremely vulnerable to suggestion, and then suddenly releasing this stress by offering a hope to heaven. And uh, this is a very interesting chapter, showing how, uh, how completely, on, a, on purely intuitive and empirical ground, a, a skilled natural psychologist, as Wesley was, uh, could discover these uh, Pavlovian uh, methods. Well, as I say, we now know the reason why these techniques work, and uh, there is no doubt at all that we can, if we want to, uh, carry them much further uh, than was possible in the past. And, of course, in the uh, history of the recent history of brainwashing, both as applied to uh, prisoners of war and to the uh, lower personnel within the Communist Party in China, uh, we see that the Pavlovian methods have been applied systematically and with, with uh, evidently with extraordinary efficacy. I mean, I think there can be no doubt that uh, by the application of these methods, a very large army of totally devoted people 
uh, has been created. Uh, the, the conditioning has been driven in, so to say, uh, by kind of psychological ontophoresis uh, into the very depths of the uh, of people's being, and has got so deep that it's very difficult for it ever to be rooted out. And uh, these uh, methods, I, I think, are a real refinement on the older methods of terror, because they combine methods of terror with methods of uh, acceptance, methods that is the person who is subjected to a form of, of terroristic stress, uh, but uh, for the purpose of inducing a kind of voluntary, quote, um, acceptance of uh, the state and uh, uh, the psychological state into which he has been driven and the state of affairs within which he finds himself. So that, as I say, there has been, I think, a, a definite improvement, shall we say, uh, in the, even in the techniques of, of terrorism. Well, then we come to uh, consideration of other techniques, of, of non-terroristic techniques for uh, inducing consent and for uh, inducing people to love their servitude. Uh, here, I mean, I think we can, uh, I don't think I can possibly go into all of them because I don't know all of them, but I mean, I can mention a few of the more obvious uh, uh, methods uh, which uh, uh, can now be used and which uh, are based upon recent scientific findings. Uh, first of all, there are the uh, methods connected with uh, straight suggestion and, uh, and hypnosis. I think we know much more about this subject than was, was known in the past. People, of course, have always known about suggestion and although they didn't know the word hypnosis, uh, they certainly practiced it in uh, various ways. But we uh, have, I think, a much greater knowledge of the, of the subject than in the past, and we, we can make use of our knowledge in ways which uh, I think the past was probably never able to make use of, make use of it. Uh, for example, one of the things we have, we now know for certain, is that there is uh, of course, an enormous, I and mean, this has been always known, a very great uh, difference between individuals in regard to their suggestibility. But we now, I think, uh, know pretty clearly that it's a sort of statistical structure of a population in regard to its, uh, to its, its suggestibility. Uh, it's very interesting when you look at the, the findings in different fields, I mean, in the field of hypnosis, in the field of uh, administering placebos, for example, uh, in the field of general uh, suggestion uh, in states of drowsiness or of light sleep, you will find the same sorts of orders of magnitude continually cropping up. Uh, you will find, for example, that the um, experienced uh, hypnotists uh, will tell one uh, that the number of people, the percentage of people who can be hypnotized with the utmost facility, just like that, uh, is about 20, 20%. With about uh, a corresponding number at the other end of the scale are, are very, very difficult or almost impossible to hypnotize. And that in between there lies a, uh, the, a large mass of people who can, with more or less uh, difficulty, be hypnotized. That, that, uh, they can gradually be, to work hard enough at it, be, be got into the hypnotic state. 
And in, in the same way, when uh, the same sort of figures crop up again, for example, in relation to the administration of placebos. There was, there was a big experiment was carried out three or four years ago in the um, General Hospital in Boston on post-operative cases where several hundred men and women uh, suffering comparable kinds of pain after serious operation uh, were allowed to, were given uh, injections whenever they asked for them, whenever the pain got bad, and the injections that uh, 50% of the time were of morphia and 50% of the time were of distilled water. And about 20% of, of those uh, who uh, went through the experiment, about 20% of them got just as much relief from the distilled water as from the morphia. About 20% got no relief from the distilled water. And in between were those who got some relief or got relief uh, occasionally. So here again we see uh, an, an uh, the same sort of, uh, of distribution. And similarly with regard to uh, what in Brave New World I call hypnopedia, which is the sleep teaching, uh, I was talking not long ago to a man who manufactures uh, records uh, which people can listen to in a, in, during their light part of sleep. I mean, these are records for, for getting rich, for sexual satisfaction, for... Uh, confidence in salesmanship and so on and uh, he, he said it's uh, very interesting that uh, uh, he, uh, he, these records are sold on a money back basis and he says that uh, there is uh, regularly between 15 and 20 percent of people who write indignantly saying the records don't work at all and uh, he sends the money back at once uh, there are, on the other hand there are some uh, what over 20 percent who write enthusiastically, saying they are much richer, their sexual life is much better, etc., etc. And uh, these, of course, are the dream clients, and they buy more of these records. And then in between are those who complain they're not getting much results, and they have to have letters written to them saying, well, go persist, my dear, go on, and you'll get there. And they generally, they generally do get results in the long run. Well, as I say, this... Uh, on the basis of this, I think we see quite clearly that uh, the uh, human population can be categorized according to their suggestibility uh, fairly clearly. I, I suspect very strongly that this 20% is the same in all these, uh, these cases. And I suspect also that it would not be at all difficult uh, to recognize in very early childhood who were the, those who were extremely suggestible, who were those extremely unsuggestible, and who were those who uh, uh, occupied the intermediate space. Quite clearly, if everybody were extremely unsuggestible, um, organized society would be quite impossible. Uh, and if everybody were extremely uh, suggestible, then um, uh, dictatorship would be absolutely inevitable. I mean, it's very fortunate we have people who are moderately suggestible in the majority and who therefore preserve us from dictatorship but do permit the uh, organized society to, uh, to be formed. But uh, once given the fact that there are these 20% of highly suggestible people, it becomes quite clear that this is a matter of enormous political importance. Uh, for example, uh, any demagogue who is able to get hold of a, a large number of these 20% of suggestible people and to organize them is really in a position to overthrow any government in any country. 
And I mean, I, I think this, uh, uh, after all, we've had the most incredible uh, example in recent years of what can be done by efficient methods of, uh, of uh, suggestion and persuasion uh, in the form of Hitler. Uh, anybody who's uh, read, for example, Bullock's Life of Hitler uh, comes forth from this with a, a sort of horrified admiration for this infernal genius who, who really understood human weaknesses, I think almost better than anybody, and who uh, exploited them with all the resources then available. I mean, he knew everything. I mean, for example, he knew intuitively uh, this uh, Pavlovian truth that uh, uh, conditioning installed in the state of stress or fatigue uh, it goes much deeper than conditioning installed at other times. This was why all these big speeches were organized at night. It's because it's quite frankly, of course, in my country, that this was done solely because people are tired at night and therefore are much less uh, capable of resisting persuasion than they would be during the day. And uh, in all his uh, techniques, he, he was using... Uh, he, he had discovered intuitively and by uh, uh, trial and error a great many of the, of the weaknesses which we now uh, know about on a, in a sort of scientific way, I think much more clearly than he does, uh, than he did. Uh, but uh, the fact remains that uh, this differential suggestibility, uh, uh, this uh, susceptibility to uh, hypnosis, I do think uh, has, is something which has to be considered very uh, carefully in relation to any uh, kind of thought about uh, uh, democratic uh, government. I mean, if there are 20% of the people who can really be suggested into believing almost anything, as evidently they can be, uh, then we have to take uh, extremely uh, careful steps to prevent the uh, rise of demagogues who will uh, drive them on into extreme positions and then organize them into very, very dangerous uh, uh, armies, private armies, which may overthrow the, overthrow the government. But, uh, this, as I say, is uh, 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 in this field of, of pure persuasion. I think we, uh, we do know much more than we did in the past, and obviously we now have uh, uh, mechanisms for multiplying the demagogue's voice and image uh, in a quite hallucinatory way. I mean, the television and the radio, Hitler was making enormous use of the radio. He could speak to millions of people simultaneously. Uh, I mean, this, this alone, of course, is creates an enormous gulf between the modern and the ancient demagogue. And the ancient demagogue could only uh, appeal to as many people as his voice could reach by yelling at, the, um, at his utmost. But uh, the modern demagogue can touch literally millions at a time. And, and of course, with his multiplication of his image, he can produce this kind of uh, hallucinatory effect, which uh, uh, is of, of enormous uh, uh, hypnotic and suggestive uh, uh, importance. But then there are the various other methods which one can think of, which uh, uh, have, thank heaven, as yet not been used, but which obviously could be used. Uh, there is, for example, the uh, pharmacological method. This, this was one of the things I, I talked about in, in Brave New World, 
I invented a hypothetical drug called Soma, which of course would not exist as it stood there because it was simultaneously a stimulant, a narcotic, and a hallucinogen, which seems unlikely in one substance. But uh, the point is that in several, uh, if you apply several different substances, you could get almost all these results even now. Uh, and the really interesting thing about the new chemical substances, the new mind-changing drugs, is this, that whereas, uh, if you look back into history, it's clear that man has always uh, had a, a hankering after mind-changing chemicals. He has always desired to take holidays from himself. Uh, but the, uh, and this is the most extraordinary fact of all, is that every naturally occurring stimulant, narcotic, sedative, or hallucinogen was discovered uh, in before the dawn of history. I don't think uh, there's one single one of these naturally occurring ones which um, modern science has discovered. Modern science, of course, has discovered better ways of extracting the active principles from these drugs and, of course, has discovered numerous uh, ways of synthesizing new substances of extreme power. But the, uh, the actual discovery of these naturally occurring things was made by primitive men, goodness knows how many centuries ago. Uh, there is, for example, in the, uh, underneath the uh, lake dwellings, um, the uh, early Neolithic lake dwellings which have been dug up in, uh, in Switzerland, so we find poppy heads which looks as though people were already using this most ancient and powerful and most dangerous of narcotics, uh, even in the days before the rise of agriculture. So the man was apparently a dope addict before he was a farmer, which is a, a, a very, very curious comment on human nature. Uh, but um, the difference, as I say, between the ancient mind changers, the traditional mind changers, and these new substances is that uh, they were extremely harmful, and the new ones are not. I mean, even uh, the uh, permissible mind changer, alcohol is not entirely harmless, as people may have noticed, uh, and uh, the, um, the other ones, the non-permissible ones, such as opium and cocaine, uh, opium and all its derivatives are very harmful indeed. Uh, they, they rapidly produce addiction and, uh, and they in some cases uh, lead at an extraordinary rate to uh, physical degeneration and death. Um, whereas these, these new substances, uh, this is really very extraordinary. There's a number of these new mind-changing substances uh, can produce enormous revolutions within the mental side of our being and yet uh, do almost nothing to the physiological side. I mean, you can have a, an enormous um, revolution, for example, with uh, LSD-25 or with uh, the newly synthesized drug uh, psilocybin, which is the active principle of the Mexican sacred mushroom. Uh, you can have this enormous uh, mental revolution with no more physiological revolution and you would get some drinking two cocktails. Uh, and this is a really a most extraordinary fact. And uh, it is, of course, true that the pharmacologists are producing a great many wonder drugs which, uh, where the cure is almost worse than the disease. Uh, and every year, new edition of the 
medical textbooks contains a, a longer and longer chapter on what are called iatrogenic diseases, that is to say diseases caused by doctors. Uh, and, uh, the, uh, and this is quite true uh, that many of the wonder drugs are uh, extremely dangerous. I mean, they, they can produce extraordinary effects and in critical conditions they should certainly be used, but they should be used with the utmost caution. But there is evidently a whole class of drugs affecting the uh, central nervous system which can produce enormous uh, changes in, uh, in sedation, in euphoria, in uh, energizing the whole mental process uh, without uh, doing any perceptible harm to the body. And in this sense, uh, this represents, it seems to me, the most extraordinary revolution that it is uh, in the hands of a dictator. Uh, uh, these substances of one kind or another could be uh, used uh, in the most um, well with complete uh, first of all with, with complete harmlessness uh, and uh, the result would be that uh, uh, I mean you can imagine a, a euphoric which would make people thoroughly happy even in the most abominable circumstances I mean it, these things are possible I mean you see extraordinary thing. I mean, I thought this has even been true with the crude oil drugs. I mean, as a houseman years ago remarked, uh, apropos Milton's paradise loss, uh, he said, and beer does more than Milton can to justify God's ways to man. Uh, and beer is, of course, an extremely crude drug uh, compared with these ones, and to you can certainly say that some of the psychic energizers and the new hallucinants can do incomparably more than Milton and all the theologians combined could possibly do to make uh, the terrifying mystery of our existence seem more tolerable than it does. Uh, so that here uh, I think one has a, uh, an enormous uh, area in which the, uh, the ultimate revolution could function very well indeed. Uh, an area in which uh, a great deal of control could be used but by not to tell her, but to making life seem much more enjoyable than it normally does. Uh, enjoyable to the point where, as I said before, uh, human beings uh, come to love a state of things which by any reasonable and decent human standard they ought not to love. And this, I think, uh, is perfectly possible. But then, uh, very briefly, let me speak about uh, one of the more recent um, developments of, uh, uh, in the sphere of, of neurology, the, uh, the implantation of uh, electrodes in the brain. Uh, this, of course, has been done on a large scale in, uh, in animals, and in, uh, uh, in a few cases it's uh, been done in, hopeless, uh, in cases of the hopelessly insane. Uh, and it is anybody who's uh, watched. Uh, uh, the behavior of rats with uh, electrodes planted in different centers uh, uh, must uh, come away from this experience with the most extraordinary doubts about what on earth is in store for us if uh, ever this uh, is got hold of by a dictator. Uh, the, uh, I saw not long ago some rats uh, in the Goulds Laboratory at UCLA uh, there were two sets 
often. One with electrodes planted in a pleasure center. And these rats were, the, the technique was that they had a bar which they pressed, uh, which um, turned on a very small current for a short space of time, which uh, we had a wire connected with that electrode, and which um, stimulated this pleasure center, which is evidently absolutely ecstatic, but these rats were, were pressing the bar 18,000 times a day. <laughs> Uh, apparently, if you kept them from pressing the bar for a day, they would press the bar 36,000 times on the following day and would fall till they fell down in complete exhaustion. <laughs> and they would neither eat nor be interested in the, uh, the opposite sex and would just go on pressing the bar. Uh, then the most extraordinary rats were those where the electrode was planted halfway between a pleasure and a pain center and where evidently the the result was a kind of mixture of uh, the most wonderful ecstasy and being on the rack at the same time. And you, you would see the rat sort of looking at its bar and sort of saying to be or not to be, that is the question. Finally, would approach and look and then go back with this awful, I mean, if I can humanized uh, anthropomorphized I mean he was feeling something terribly mixed and he would wait for quite a long time before pressing the bar again but he would always press it again and this was the, the extraordinary thing and in the, I noticed in this um, most recent issue of Scientific American there's a very interesting article on electrodes in the brains of chickens uh, where the, the technique is, is very ingenious you, you think into their brain a little um, socket with a screw on it and the electrodes then can be screwed deeper and deeper into the brain stem and you can test at any moment according to the depth of the scoping fractions per millimeter of what you're stimulating and, and these creatures are not merely uh, stimulated by wire they are fitted with a, a miniaturized radio receiver weighing less than an ounce which is attached to them so that they can be communicated with uh, at a distance. I mean, they can run about in the barnyard and you can press the button. And uh, the, this particular area of the brain to which the electrode has been screwed down to will be stimulated. And <coughs> you will get these uh, fantastic phenomena that a, uh, a sleepy chicken will suddenly get up and rush about or uh, an active chicken will suddenly sit down and go to sleep or a hen will suddenly start sitting as though it were uh, we're hatching out an egg, uh, or a rooster will start fighting, or will suddenly go into a state of extreme depression. Uh, the, uh, the whole picture of the absolute control of the prize is, uh, uh, is terrifying. And uh, in the cases, the few cases in which this has been done with very sick human beings, uh, the effects are evidently very remarkable too. I was talking last summer to, uh, in England, to Grey Walter, who is the um, most eminent exponent of the electroencephalogram techniques in England, and he was telling me that they, he's seen hopeless uh, inmates of asylums with these things in, in their heads, and that, uh, these people were suffering from the, the uncontrollable depression. And they were, they had a the electrodes inserted into something resembling evidently the treasure center of the rest. Uh, anyhow, when they felt too bad, they just pressed the button in the battery in their pocket 
And he said to the doctor, fantastic analysis of those diamonds that may turn up. And they would evidently feel, for I don't know how long at the time, very cheerful and happy. So that <coughs> here again one sees his most uh, uh, extraordinary uh, revolutionary techniques uh, which uh, are now available uh, to us. Now, the, uh, I think... What is obviously perfectly clear is that for the present, these techniques are not being much used except in a purely experimental way. But I think it is extraordinarily important for us to realize, to, to realize what is happening, to make ourselves acquainted with what had already happened, and then to use a certain amount of of preserved imagination to extrapolate into the future uh, the sort of things that might happen. I mean, what might happen if, uh, if these fantastically powerful techniques uh, were used by unscrupulous uh, people in authority? What on earth would, would happen? Well, what sort of society would we get? And uh, I think this is peculiarly important, because as one sees looking back over history, we have allowed in the past all those advances in technology which have profoundly changed uh, the social and individual life. We have allowed them to take us by surprise. I mean, it seems to me that uh, during the late 18th century, early 19th century, when the uh, new machines were making possible the factory system, it was not beyond the wit of man to see what, to, uh, to look at what was happening and to project into the future and maybe to forestall the um, really dreadful consequences which uh, plagued uh, England and most of Western Europe and most of this country uh, for about 50 or 60 years with uh, the horrible abuses of the factory system. And if uh, a certain amount of forethought had been devoted to the problem at that time, if people had first of all found out what was happening and then used their imagination to see what might happen and then had gone on to work out means by which the worst uh, applications of the new techniques should not take place and then I think uh, Western humanity might have been spared about three generations of utter misery which was imposed upon the poor at that time and uh, similarly with the various uh, technological advances now. I mean, it's quite clear we have to start thinking very, very hard about the problems of automation. Uh, and again, I think we have to think still more profoundly about the problems which may arise in relation to these new techniques which may contribute uh, to the, this ultimate revolution. Our business is to, first of all, as, as I say, to to be aware of what is happening, then to use our imagination to see what might happen, how this might be abused, and then, if possible, to see uh, that the enormous powers which we now possess, thanks to these um, uh, scientific and technological advances, uh, shall be used for the benefit of human beings and not for their ultimate degradation. Thank you. <coughs>
I have listened to uh, one of the men who were put out by the Tavistock Institute and the big universities of England to promote ideas of, of a form of uh, happiness, as they called it, the disguise of happiness for humanity by the use of drugs, uh, chemical means, and even electronic brain stimulation. When he talks about uh, the poor suffering, etc., the people, the masses, you've got to understand this man was brought up amongst elitist circles who see themselves as the good shepherds, the the, the more evolved creatures looking over the lesser evolved of the masses in a not too unfriendly fashion. That's how it appears to them. That's how they rationalize it, basically. So when he's talking about uh, the, to end misery and suffering, it's kind of like a farmer looking at uh, his flock of sheep who are upset over something. It's, it's the same sort of way. He's not really looking at uh, individuals in personal distress over um, something that they should maybe perhaps be concerned about. He's, he's, he's rather looking at ways to keep them placid and happy, and that will solve everyone's problems, the controllers or the shepherds, and, and the masses. If you can't think and worry about something, then... then um, you don't have to do any worrying you're incapable of worrying in fact if, if your brain's been all fogged up with chemicals and you're being controlled by a small elite he just doesn't see anything wrong with this um, the big controllers uh, he was one of many of course who were put out there all from the same source all with the same vision of a future uh, which would end all war all conflict uh, by standardizing a mass mindset um, the, the Borg mentality you might say that was the solution to everything uh, and I guess they're right in that sense so they will have no more problems from the little boys at the bottom if, if each little boy and girl has no mind of their own to use so it's up to you to, to take this information analyze it study the time period it was written in, by the institutions that it came from, by the, the, the big uh, university, university funded um, programs, funded again by the big foundations, to do intense study and research into human behavior, basically mass human behavior, mass psychology. And you'll get some frightening answers as to what they dreamed up. And then you'll see that what they dreamed up has been implemented into your own life. Uh, people are chasing all kinds of things today which are conjured up by communications industries and media and entertainment. They're chasing uh, phantoms, you might say, phantoms in the air. Um, forms created purely out of imagination uh, with cunningness of course using archetypal type symbolism which everyone reacts to uh, it's a good, a good example is the reptilian agenda uh, so lots of books 
started really with a series on television called V, a well-funded series about these uh, creatures and UFOs, of course, coming down to Earth and and uh, under under their partly human skin, they're actually reptile people who eat mice and rats and things. Uh, that prepared the, the groundwork. Uh, as Albert Pike said, they always lay the foundation first and build on it. Out comes eventually another man with his own in interpretation of uh, the Sumerian tablets. Uh, a unique interpretation that's kind of laughed at by uh, politer circles who have done more research than he has and who have no, no spin to take. And then that's built upon by other authors put out from the same sources to then build on it. But the foundation is faulty. It's the V, the V, you see. Uh, <laughs> you, you, if you understand what the V signal is, symbol actually means, you'll start to understand why they call things these, these particular names. Uh, so the V series came first, put the foundation there of possibility thinking, outcomes the unique interpretation to build on it then gets then come the authors with repetition 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 they call that a form of psychic driving as they used in mk ultra and of course they seem to think it's real by the much speaking as they say the more they say it the more it becomes real uh, huxley himself talks about um, the use of re repetition to get things across uh, as did Lord Bertrand Russell on the impact of science on society repetition and repetition without base without basis you see um, uh, gets the message across no matter how fantastic it is so ponder this that is all for now good night and may your God go with you <laughs>